And hello out there to Brooklyn and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And part of that process has to go to the Negro Leagues, and we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League. And, and we're, we have two authorities on the show today, uh, one who has written multiple books and another who writes some fascinating articles on it right now. And, and without further ado, let me introduce both of them. And we're going to start out in Kansas City with Phil Dixon. He's written such books as the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, as well as uh, a, a – I'm, I'm sorry I'm spacing on the full title, but you've written – about the Kansas City Monarchs, and if, and if you could uh, take it away with your shameless plug and start with that book. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite books. That's uh, the it's Wilbur Bullet Rogan and the Kansas City Monarchs, and uh, Wilbur Bullet Rogan was uh, their star pitcher and probably the first star made by the Negro National League when it was organized in 1920, uh, the first star to actually be born in the league. And so, uh, yeah, and then, of course, uh, many people recognize my book uh, from way back in 1992. You know, I don't even know where you guys were born then, but uh, <laughs> but it's a Negro baseball league, <laughs> a photographic history. Well, that's, so, that's excellent. Yeah. I'm going to have to pick up every single one of your books. And I know that you, you speak about uh, the Negro Leagues all the time as well. Uh, you, you, you've, you've gone on tours about it. So it's great to have you on once more, Phil, and we, we appreciate you coming on. And, and without further ado, uh, a gentleman who is no stranger to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and that is the Brooklyn Trolley blogger himself, Michael Colant. Mike, you have been trying to drum up the, the celebration more because there hasn't been much talk about it, whether it's COVID or otherwise. Uh, baseball hasn't done the best job shedding light on the history of the Negro Leagues. Uh, no, it hasn't. And being just a tremendous Brooklyn fan, if it happens here in Brooklyn, here or about, uh, I'm on it. But being such a baseball fan, uh, all of its history I find just fascinating. And, you know, let's let's say Negro League Baseball is 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 a, a much more underwritten endeavor than the white man's game. And here I am and this is just my humble attempt to bring attention to a, a wondrous baseball history. And everybody out there has to go to the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger website and take a look at what he's done to assemble as much as possible the, the history of the Brooklyn Royal Giants. It's really fascinating, and, and I know that, Mike, you right now are, are so ingrained in all of this, but I'm going to let you uh, steer us in the direction of celebrating the 100th anniversary. Well, thank you, Sam. You know, uh, first you say I'm an authority. I'm far from it. I'm just a uh, a voracious baseball fan with a blog. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, Mr. Phil Dixon, he is the authority. And thank you for allowing me the opportunity to lead this conversation and, and give it some direction. But the education, believe you me, will come from Mr. Phil Dixon. So, again, welcome to Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. And, Phil, thank you very kindly for returning uh, and sharing uh, what is a celebration. Welcome. All right. I'm glad to be here, really. Uh, I, I figure first, 
let us clarify what exactly is the 100th anniversary of the formation of what is specifically the national of the Negro National League, uh, headed in part or foremost by Rube Foster. That is the celebration, but obviously, and we're going to get into this in a moment, there's a tremendous backstory leading up to 1920. But let's clarify, this is the 100th anniversary, the centennial celebration of the Negro National League, founded by Mr. Rube Foster. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that's really important that we kind of um, inform people what that's all about, because uh, black baseball did not start 100 years ago. There were already teams playing uh, prior to that. We're going to go back to the 1860s. So this this is not the beginning of – this is not the birth of Negro League baseball, but it is the birth of a Negro League. So – uh, in 1920, February 13th and 4th, 14th, um, the owners of some of the great Western teams like the AB, the Indianapolis ABCs, the Chicago Giants, and the Chicago American Giants, and, and then we had the Cuban team, they all met in Kansas City to organize what would become the first and greatest lasting Negro League. And before then, it had been a dream that many owners had for their teams, but prior to that, you know, the teams are already established, so this was the birth of the Negro National League that we are celebrating, of course, uh, that same year, the Negro Southern League organized, and uh, so we could be celebrating their 100th anniversary, and of course, um, by 1923, the Eastern Color League organizes, and uh, so uh, and that's going to cover the area where you guys are. So, um, yeah, the Negro National League were teams from the West, and uh, that's what we're celebrating now. Not the birth of black baseball, but the birth of the Negro National League. That is very correct, and as you say, I think it's important for people to understand that. So why don't we jump into the time machine, and let's go back uh, to this game's genesis. Its genesis is parallel to the game of baseball itself. Uh, We can go back to the 1860s. I'm aware of uh, what's called the weak field unknowns versus the monitors, and that game took place in 1862. There was also a club called the Unique Club, uh, and there's a Philadelphia Excelsiors Club in the 60s. Fast forward a yeah. tiny bit, we moved to 1884 with Fleet, uh, Fleetwood Walker in Toledo with the Blue Stockings, and he's effectively the first major league Negro ball player. Uh, to speak of. Uh, so there is a tremendous history. And if you want to stay in the 1860s through 1880s and pick up on these topics, please do. Yeah. Well, well, a couple of things I'd like to mention, and I've written extensively on this for maybe 40 years, is Octavius Cato over with the Pythian Club out of uh, Philadelphia. And back back in, I'm going to say maybe 1885, 86, they were trying to organize professional baseball. And um, so they, a bunch of teams organized in Philadelphia, and these were white teams, and they were forming for this league. And uh, the Philadelphia Pythians came over, tried to get in the league. They were not able to because they were voted out. And essentially you have baseball's first color barrier. 
And so we're we're already in the 1800s. We're nowhere near Jackie Robinson. But this is the beginning, and it started right there in Philadelphia. But, yeah, so you could, you, what you're doing is you're talking about teams that were playing in the 1860s. And so some of these teams were playing before and shortly thereafter the Civil War. So black players were already having their presence felt enough to be uh, basically exiled from the professional game in the 1860s, 1880s. And then also you might want to mention Bud Fowler. Bud Fowler, uh, he's probably the only ball player uh, who's from Cooperstown, New York, to be buried in Cooperstown, New York. Should be in the Hall of Fame. Bud Fowler was a real pioneer, the first black player to play in the uh, minor leagues. And, of course, he was out of New York State, and uh, he played all over the country, never in the South, but he played all over the country, and he faced just as much discrimination in, say, a Keokuk, Iowa, or Topeka, Kansas, as anybody faced in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. So Bud Fowler is a, a name that you definitely want to mention, and all of these guys were pre-Moses um, Fleetwood Walker. So um, these are some names that you, you, you need to include always. Bud Fowler appears on the scene in the late 1870s. Uh, turn of the century, we have uh, independent circuits, east and west, uh, independence, barn, barnstorming clubs, and this is all leading up to 1920 in the formation of the Negro National League. And, you know, it's a loose affiliation, but an affiliation nonetheless. There's a circuit, but there's also barnstorming going on. And, and and that's the way they sustain their economy. And, of course, now we're getting into the era of the Brooklyn Royal Giants and things of that nature. So I would like to – well, first of all, you know, that era, the turn of the century, 1901s and the 1910s, we're talking about Rube Foster being a player. Uh, and after becoming a player, of course, he becomes an, an executive and goes on to found – the Chicago American Giants. But he becomes a titan of the game emanating from the West, whereas here in the East there's a gentleman named Nat Strong who owns the Brooklyn Royal Giants. And I'm going to put it to you this way. I I believe these two gentlemen, and I'm I'm already getting ahead of myself, but the endeavors of these two gentlemen and fueled by capitalism, I believe elevates the game to an astounding level by the time Ruth Foster uh, establishes the Negro National League in 1920. And then, of course, uh, Nat Strong, as you mentioned, founds amongst his partners the Eastern Colored League in 1923 as direct competition through Ruth Foster. But take us back to the turn of the century, barnstorming and the independence in their relationship and, 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 and the genesis of the Brooklyn Royal Giants. That's something uh, important to us here locally. Yeah. Well, let's see. You know, in later years, there was a game called the East-West game, and it was the annual All-Star game. And that annual All-Star game came out of the infancy, which is at the turn of the century and before what was happening in the country, which is why they named it the East-West game later on. And so basically the East-West 
were the teams who were coming out of the New York area, and these were the black teams. And the next powerful area was Chicago. So there, that's your east, that's your west. So New York and Chicago are always going to be very pivotal in this whole conversation. So what do you have is this. Uh, in, the, in the east, you had the Cuban Giants. The Cuban Giants were the major team. They didn't come out west very often. But in the 1890s, they made the trip out west. And so out west, they were going to come to Chicago. You're going to have the team. Uh, it was actually Chicago, uh, Chicago Union Giants at that particular time. And it was a guy who owned them by the name of Frank Leland and a guy named Peters. And so they would come out from the east and come to the west. But the game in the east, you know, wasn't nearly developed as the game in the west. And it, it, it would take me a while to explain, but by 1902, most of the great players from the west jumped to the east. So you had people like Home Run Johnson who later – uh, managed the Brooklyn Royal Giants, uh, Saul White, uh, people like that coming over. And 1903 was Andrew Ruth Foster coming over to a new team called the Cuban X-Giants. So you still had the Cuban, the genuine, they changed the name to the genuine Cuban Giants. Then you had the Cuban X-Giants. So, uh, so all these players, great names from the West, ended up coming to the East, and they really developed the baseball in the East. And so you have teams like the Brooklyn Royal Giants and, of course, the Philadelphia Giants, who turned out to be a great team, and the Cuban ex-Giants. And uh, so that was the buildup. And these teams, with the exception of the Cuban ex-Giants, who went out about 1908, 1907, and they pretty much went away. But what you have is the rest of these teams, the Philadelphia Giants, I think, went away in 1910. But and they were replaced by others, but this is the birth of real black baseball at a very high level. And they would play games against each other, but the bulk of their money was made through barnstorming. And there were, they were barnstorming into cities all over the East where there was good town baseball, and there would be ex-major leaguers, ex-minor leaguers, some guys going up to the big leagues, some coming down. And these were the places they would play. And so there was a lot of money to be made in the East. And then uh, probably around 1907, Ruth Foster jumped back to the West. And it was with the Frank Leland's Leland Giants. And so they became a powerhouse. And this is the infancy that led to the formation of the Negro National League in 1920. So it all started with these teams at the turn of the century that were really playing a brand of high-class baseball, and all the rest of the teams were copying after them, the black teams. And truth be told, Ruth Foster had been contemplating formation of a league for at least 10, 12 years before he actually launched it in 1920, correct? Uh, that's correct. As a matter of fact, it originally started the idea with, uh, with Frank Leland, who Ruth Foster was playing for. So they probably some great conversations were there, and um, but they just couldn't pull it off. The thing that helped them pull it off was Ruth Foster, and I tell you why. In the East, you had Nat Strong. Nat Strong was a booking agent. He controlled all these teams. As a matter of fact, he worked really closely with Walter uh, Walter Schlichter, even you know around 1904, five, six, seven. 
and uh, he was the one setting up a lot of these dates, controlled, you know, four or five teams, maybe more than that. But he controlled all of the prominent black teams as far as bookings in the East. Well, when Drew Foster came back West by 1920, he controlled the Cuban giants that were, that were in those uh, Cuban stars that were in the West. He also controlled the Detroit team. He controlled his Chicago American giants. And uh, he also booked the Chicago Giants. So he controls four of the top teams in the West. So when they decided to organize a league, the only way they could really organize that league is to get Root Foster to come in with his four teams. And these were some of the top teams. So uh, by getting Root Foster to come in is the way that they were able to organize this league. And, of course, if he's going to come in, he wants to be president. And he became president of the new league. And, and that's how he was born. Uh, he was a booking agent who turned league president. We've mentioned numerous teams so far. I, I think it's time we explain why there's such a preponderance of teams named the Giants. Break the code for us, Phil. Yeah. Well, at that particular time, black people's photographs weren't in the newspaper. And so they needed, all over America, some kind of way to identify a black team. The name Giant became synonymous with black baseball teams. So, you know, they might mention the color Giants or, you know, whatever city it was in, it would be, you know, that and the Giants. And so people, without seeing a photograph, they knew that it was a black team because if it wasn't the New York Giants, and by the way, the name Giants actually belonged to black teams before the New York Giants even got it. So this is uh, this when you think of the name Giants, you can always connect it to black baseball teams. But it was an identifying marker, and this helped people who never saw a picture of these guys to know who was coming to town because some people, if it was a black team, you know, they might choose not to go to that game and they needed to know who they were going to support. If I may, may chime in, um, one of the things that I was talking about Mike the other day was just, just how I, I loved the idea of the Brooklyn Royal Giants because it seemed like it was also a play on the Dodgers and the Dodgers in Brooklyn being the, the arch rival of the New York Giants. So I always liked that from uh, the, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Royal Giants perspective, Phil. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, and, and what's interesting, I recently wrote an article about uh, the name Royals in Kansas City. There was actually a Kansas City Royals who were all black team who later on called the Kansas City Royal Giants. And so when they named the Kansas City Royals, they had a contest and people could just pitch in whatever name they thought would be a good name. And someone pitching in the name Kansas City Royals without ever the management of the Royals and the leadership of the Royals ever knowing that that had been the former name of a black baseball team that was pretty prominent. So so this name wow. Royals and the Giants, you know, you know, there's a history there that hasn't been talked about enough how some of these names came to be. So, um, yeah, def- definitely the Brooklyn Royal Giants, that's that's kind of a different name. Now, you know, one thing I might mention, Rue Foster wanted his team to be the greatest of all time. So he called his team not 
at that particular time, they weren't called the Chicago American Giants. They were just called the American Giants. So his team belonged to America was his thought. Very grandiose, big-time ideas. And so, yeah. And so they weren't Chicago American Giants. They were the American Giants. So they they were the best of everybody. Before we get into integration and the ultimate demise of the leagues, I think it's important that we speak of some of the executives of the leagues, uh, like Cumberland Posey and J.L. Wilkinson and the Backrack Brothers and Abe and Ethel Manley, Newark. Uh, these were very important and, and regional titans of the game. Phil? Yeah, boys. It kind of, just kind of pick, depends on what owner you want to start, start with first. Um, you know, uh, if I was throwing in owners, I would also mean, meant throwing Gus Greenway, who was in the 30s. That's another one that you want to talk to. And uh, – when it comes to booking agents like Walter, you know, like you know, like Matt Strong, you might also want to mention Abe Saperstein. Mm. So, but the the owners of these teams are very important, and uh, and I've I've never seen a book specifically on the owners, uh, but but every owner had some fascinating story about how they got started and how they you know basically got into this baseball and then how they supported their team. And usually um, there were a lot of owners who supported it with what we what we would call today the lottery. But uh, back then, some people might have called it the numbers. And even further back than that, we would call it policy. And uh, even our modern-day lottery system, people don't realize that, too, was started by African Americans. So uh, there's, uh, there's great history there. Um, you know, one, one of my most fascinating uh, owners I like to talk about uh, be, because of the complexity of them, is a guy by the name of Tom Baird. <clears throat> and Tom Baird was the co-owner of the Kansas City Monarchs. And uh, Tom Baird, and uh, they started the Monarchs in 1920 as an expansion team in the Negro National League. And Tom Baird and Wilkinson had entered into an agreement in 1919 for 50% of the team. Well, by 1922, it comes out that Tom Baird is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But Tom remains in the game longer than any of these other owners that we will discuss today. And um, he was there from 1920 to 1955. <laughs> and without Tom Baird, you probably wouldn't have had Jackie Robinson. And, I, and, you know, we know what Jackie Robinson means to baseball. But, yeah, he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and may I just say, that. Mike, before before you before you go on, Mike, may I just say, like, it's just the nuance of of trying to dissect the thought process there, where you know, with it, it's just it's remarkable. It's just it's a, it, everything we're talking about was remarkable, and the analysis of 20th century race relations as well as sports. It's it, this is just fascinating. Incomparable. Exactly. Incomparable. Incomparable to anything that's really gone down in this country. Uh, but Phil, real quick, I, I have a, a theory, and I ask for your education on this. And we're going to circle this back to Rube Foster and Matt Strong. And I'm going to focus this on East versus West. First, 
that strong passes. Well, you know, first in 1930, Rube Rube Foster passes away. And in 1935, Nat Strong passes away. And these are the two titans of East and West. That's phase one. Phase two, I would point to 1947 when the Manleys sell the Eagles. And in 1948, Mr. Wilkinson sells the Kansas City Monarchs. I would point to that as phase two, two instances where the rest of the league failed to fill a vacuum. And then after this, we'll transition to Jackie Robinson, integration, Monty Irvin, and all the collateral conversation. Okay. Well, let me, so let that's me a theory of mine. East versus West, the passings away of Blue Foster and that strong, and the selling of their team by the Manleys and Mr. Wilkinson. Well, there's one more person I would throw in there, and that would be Cumberland Posey. Mm-hmm. Of the Homestead Grays And I'll tell you the reason why And I, I'm going to even throw in there uh, A guy who was a German Jew Who owned the Pittsburgh Pirates A guy by the name of Barney Dreyfus Barney di- dies in 1931 And at that particular time He only allowed teams to come into his stadium If they were booked through Cumberland Posey So essentially Pittsburgh being a you know a, a major team, this is uh, pre Gus Greenlee. Uh, they had control of the Cumberland Posey's Grays had control of the Pittsburgh Stadium, and also because we got some Barney Dreyfus, and of course Posey dies I think 1946 or something like that 45 46, and I think that that made a difference because Posey was opposed to allowing the major leagues to cherry pick their teams. He felt that they should go in or they should make the Negro League a a circuit or either bring in a full team. He didn't believe that they should allow them to cherry-pick their team. And, of course, turns out he was probably correct because when they cherry-picked a while, the Negro Leagues were gone, and all of these black businessmen, including um, the Manleys, they're out of business because they they can't find enough talent to stay afloat and they have no name recognition because all their stars are now playing in the minor leagues or major leagues. So, but you are correct. There was different levels of the East versus West, and you're absolutely correct on that. So I would just add those two names. So let us get into integration. Why Jackie Robinson and whatnot? Uh, I, I'd like to take <laughs> I'd like to take this approach. Uh, first, we'll get into why Jackie Robinson and why the decision was made. Uh, to make him the first. But, we, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Monty Irvin. French Rickey had approached him in 1945. Alpha Manley said that she, amongst the other owners, thought that uh, Monty Irvin would be the first to represent Negro League Baseball in the white man's game. Uh, and Satchel Page says, also says something very interesting, that Jackie wasn't good enough to even break into the Kansas City Monarchs infield, first base, second, third, or short. I find that amusing. Uh, I'm not here to dispute anything. I'm here to celebrate everything. So Jackie Robinson, the way I understand it, and part of these anecdotes come from uh, Sharon, whom I I met here at Brooklyn Barclays Center. Uh, 
and, and, and other interviews and, and things that I've listened to and researched, uh, he grew up in Southern California. He was exposed, and you put that in quotations, to white people and integration. Uh, he went to the University of Southern California. So he was a prepared man mentally to perhaps uh, on the spot deal with whatever life threw his way, whereas many players openly admit, no, I wouldn't have had the patience to put up with all that crap. And I, you know, excuse me for putting it that way. Uh, so there's reasons why they chose Jackie, but Monty Irvin, I think, first and foremost deserves mention because he was the first or one of the first that Branch Rickey approached. Take it away. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, going back to the Monarchs, what's interesting about Jackie, Jackie had problems trying to find a position with the Kansas City Monarchs. Matter of fact, Jesse Williams, who I knew very well, ended up moving over to second base so Jackie could play shortstop because Jackie couldn't beat him out. And um, what's interesting about that is over at second base, they had a guy named Barney Sorrell, Barney Sorrell, uh, who was also a great player. And um, But the real interesting part is this is during World War II. The greatest Monarch players aren't even there. So Buck O'Neill, who would have been their normal first baseman, he's not there. So they moved Barney Sorrell over, <laughs> over to first base. And so they're shuffling the deck on their – field to make a place for Jackie Robinson because he had national recognition. He would be a natural draw, and they did promote him like that. And so, um, yeah, he had difficult difficulties. And that shows you the the talent that was the in the uh, Negro National League. It was talent rich. And then, of course, uh, Larry Doby, a little bit younger, might have been a great choice. Um, uh, you know, not for, you know, I think he broke his leg in one of those years, uh, maybe 51. 52, 53, somewhere and he broke his leg. He might have been even better had he not had that serious accident. So you're talking about a great player who would have come through. So, um, and, and then the last thing I might want to mention is in 1945, uh, uh, reportedly Branch Rickey had organized a team called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, and they were going to start a United States, it was called the United States uh, Negro League. And so they were going to compete with the Negro American Negro National League. So Jackie uh, thought that he was being recruited for that team when he originally came into the office. Of course, later on, we know it was the real Brooklyn Dodgers of the National League. But, oh, that's a great story. I know, boy, people have told these stories over and over again. I don't know if I can add anything that hasn't been said, but I would say you definitely want to read the literature on on Jackie Robinson uh, pre-integration. We mentioned Branch Rickey. Uh, first of all, Larry Doby and Monty Irvin together, Monty Irvin at shortstop and Larry Doby at second, they got to be considered one of the best double play combinations in the game. Well, at that particular time, they were both young players, but there were a lot of double play combinations that were better. But those guys are young. They're on the rise. And the Negro National League always, or Negro Baseball Leagues, always found talent. And they would, uh, you know, bring people on as youngsters. You know, um, Roy Campanello came into the league with the Baltimore Eli Giants. He was 15 years old. Uh, Willie Mays, 
15 years old playing with the Birmingham Black Barons on the Chatt- Chattanooga Black Lookout. So they they could find good ball players, and um, so uh, yeah, they were a good double play combination, but they weren't the best in the Negro leagues. I can tell you that. Not at well, that time. Speaking of the best, why don't we crank up the celebration and talk about members of the Hall of Fame? I believe uh, there are 41 former Negro League players in the Hall of Fame. Uh, some we're very familiar with. Some are not so familiar to people. Uh, the obvious ones are Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella, Satchel Paige. Uh, Josh Gibson, let's stop at him for a second. He passes away in 1947, unfortunately. He doesn't get, A, to see Jackie Robinson integrate baseball. B, you know he was going to be selected at some point. What an unfortunate passing away of, obviously, one of the greatest sluggers of all time. Bill? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing is, uh, Josh had been sick for a number of years. As a matter of fact, I talked to uh, Vic Harris's wife. Now, Vic Harris was the manager of the Grays, and Vic Harris's wife told me that, Many times they would go to the mental hospital where they had Josh in there all week. And so they would come and they would be playing there maybe in Pittsburgh or Washington over the weekend. And she said they would go get Josh out of the hospital and he would come and crash home runs. Hadn't been playing all week. <laughs> I thought that was a fascinating story. But, yeah, he had been sick for a number of years. And But, you know, when he died, if I'm correct, I'm just going off the top of my memory, I think he was just 38 years old. But if I'm correct on that, if you remember a guy named Bob Thurman, I don't know if you remember him. He played with the Cincinnati Reds, uh, former Homestead Gray, former Kansas City Monarch. I think he came to the big leagues at age 38. So, um, yeah, they certainly would have had Josh in there at some period. Some of the more obvious names are Buck Leonard, Monty Irvin, as we mentioned, who Cool Papa Bell, Judy uh, Johnson, Willie Mays, Rube Foster, as we mentioned, Hank Aaron. Uh, I will stop next at Bullet Rogan. You wrote a book about him. Yeah, Bullet Rogan is one of my favorites. We happened to, uh, he grew up in the same hometown that I grew up in. And uh, when I, you know, I would hear people talk about Bullet Rogan, they knew his family and Actually, he was only a few blocks from where I grew up. So I heard lots of Bullet Rogan stories, you know, circulating around Kansas City, Kansas. And uh, thank God I was able to write the book about him while some of these people were still alive. But Bullet Rogan, to me, in my estimation, was the greatest all-around baseball player that ever lived. And, uh, and by that, I mean someone who could pitch, who could hit, who could throw, who could run, who could bat, who could hit home runs. And, um, I, uh, you know, I, I would rank him a bit ahead of Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth couldn't run, you know. But you have Bullet Rogan, who was a 10-second man. And I know lots – I get lots of kickback from or from people who believe in Martin Diego. So I said, well, you know, he was a great player, but even Martin Diego was no Bullet Rogan. So, so you can imagine you're in pretty elite company when you're, when you're having these conversations. They even be compared with Babe Ruth. That lets you know that even Martin Luther, Martin Hago or Bullet Rogan were outstanding, out, truly outstanding players. And so, uh, yeah, but Bullet Rogan was a guy who won over 400 games as a pitcher, hit over 400 home runs, and uh, 
It was a 10-second man, so he stole over 2,000 bases. Find me a guy like that, and I'll sign him up in tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, allow me to play contrarian for all the Oscar Charleston rooters out there. Because mm-hmm. there's a preponderance of people who say he was the best Negro League player. How would you compare him to Bullet Rogan? Well, well, the, the key word is all around. Charles, Charleston never was never a pitcher like Bullet Rogan. Now he did pitch early in his career, right? But he mm-hmm. he was never he was never a Bullet Rogan. And Charleston hit for power. He did all those things. But when I say all around player, I'm talking about someone who can pitch and who could bat. And so Charleston. He he would fall short on the pitching side, but uh, certainly he was a great player. And as uh, we were just saying, great players, uh, you you got to put Charleston in there because he was like legendary in the in the whole Negro American League and Negro National League. You mentioned Bully Rogan being a pitcher. I have a pitcher for you. But before we get there, let me just throw out some more uh, Hall of Famers. Uh, we have Ben Taylor, uh, Luis Santop. We have Bill Mackey, we have Jose Mendez, Frank Homerun Grant, Pete Hill, some of these guys who played for the Brooklyn Royal Giants, Ray Brown, Andy Cooper, Turkey Stearns, underrated as far as I'm concerned still, and Hilton Smith. I know I'm missing a couple, but now I'm going to throw Brooklyn, what I call Brooklyn royalty, at you, even though he only pitched one season for the Royal Giants. Uh, John Donaldson. It's my understanding that they're recently uncovering uh, newspaper articles and box scores and things of that nature regarding his career. He's not in the Hall of Fame. But according yeah. to statistics being revealed, he sure as hell deserves to be enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I just want to throw out a couple of things, and then I'll let you pick it up. Uh, I just want okay. to inform also people that there's an active campaign to get him into the Hall of Fame, visit the John Donaldson Network. Uh, That being said, I'm just going to read a little passage that I wrote the other night. Uh, Another glaring omission from baseball's Hall of Fame is Southport John Donaldson. He begins his career in 1913 with the multiracial Old Nationals Club of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, And with that team, he he averages 20 strikeouts per game. Two examples of his dominance. In 1913, he strikes out 27 batters in a one-hit effort over 12 innings against a semi-pro club in Iowa. In 1915, he strikes out 35 batters during an 18-inning one-nothing contest in Sioux Falls. In 1919, he pitches a one-nothing loses a one-nothing contest to the New York Giants. John McGraw's New York Giants. Uh, now here's a different piece of information which I find astounding. Uh, and among the many sources I used, I, I, I refer to Wikipedia on this one, uh, even though I don't consider them one of the top references out there. Nonetheless, this is what they say. Newspaper coverage of Donaldson's games reveal a 413 and 161 career record with over 5,000 strikeouts and a 1.37 ERA and 86 shutouts against all levels of competition. He completes 
92% of his 322 career starts. Dig this. Uh, four career no-hitters, one perfect game. Twice he strikes out 30 batters in a game. 25 times, uh, excuse me, 11 times he strikes out 25 in a game. He fans 20 batters or more 30 times, and at least 15 batters 129 times throughout his career. And at the plate, he wields a 334 batting average in over 1,800 at bats. Uh, if they didn't have this information before, they certainly have it now. Phil. All right. That's good information. Let me give you a little more clarity on that. If you go back to my Negro, ba- Negro League baseball book that came out in 1992 that was actually finished in the 1980s, and I was unable to get a publisher for it because people didn't think anyone was interested in the Negro Leagues, you will find those 30 strikeout games mentioned 40 years ago. So what's happening now is uh, they are finding more information, but John Donaldson is not the greatest player you ever heard of if you've been reading my books. And I, I actually interviewed player, people who were part of John Donaldson's family, who I actually knew back in the 1980s. So I've been talking about him a long time. And then also prior to the John Donaldson Network in 2006, uh, actually the guy who's doing the uh, John Donaldson Network was a part of the team. It was four of us. And we compiled over 3,800 strikeouts <clears throat> at that time with the dates and the cities that he pitched them against. And the guys who were on the Hall of Fame committee turned it down. Then they nominated people who they did not have that kind of information for. And, and what they said was the reason why they believed it was, it, was, it was legit is that John Donaldson didn't make a lot of these records in the Negro, in the Negro League. So a lot of it was town baseball. But, uh, you know, I didn't think that was correct. I thought John Donaldson was a great player then. I think he's a great player now. And he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame with that 2006 class and even before. So, yeah, I was very involved with the 2006. Haven't been involved with Donaldson as much now because I cover so many things that, um, you know, I usually don't narrow down on one specific player, even though I could. But that John Donaldson, all the things that you're reading about John Donaldson is true. So uh, I just hope that maybe uh, someday – he'll get a better look. But he's not the only one. You know, if you look at Smokey Joe Williams, his records were incredible like that. There's even a guy who wasn't in the league by the name of Will Jackman up around Boston who put up just incredible numbers against semi-professional teams as well, So, and for a long period. So there's some still some good names out there. And I heard you mention Grant Home Run Johnson. If I'm correct, he's not in the Hall of Fame, if I'm correct. But he's another one that should be. So there's still some good names out there. And so hopefully John Donaldson, one day they're going to come to his number. But there's been a lot of people, not just the John Donaldson Network, who have contributed to this legacy of John Donaldson. Uh, You're right about Homer and Johnson. He's not in the Hall of Fame. That was my mistake. Uh, So let let us – you know what? I'll call it let us delve in, in, in fantasy here and the, the, the demise of the Negro Leagues. Uh, Manley took 
Branch Rickey to task for not comp- compensating teams uh, for for team uh, for players whom he effectively stole, like Don Newcomb and Jackie Robinson. Uh, but the Indians were compensated for Larry Doby and other instances where, uh, through F. Manley's instigation, teams received compensation. But now here we are. Uh, the white man's game has opened up baseball to Negro League players, and they're starting to transition over to the American and National League. Circling back to what I say created a, a power vacuum in Negro League baseball with the passing of Nat Strong and Rube Paulson, because as you say, uh, their their expertise was in booking and things of that nature, whereas I, I, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of Negro League baseball owners are not these uh, titans of industry, manufacturing, and things of that nature. Uh, and I, I, I believe they lacked, when all this started happening, integration that is, that perhaps they lacked the internal infrastructure, like the skeleton to a body and the wherewithal to sustain themselves and come together, as you mentioned before about forming one league, one unified league. And this is where I think I'm delving into fantasy, where maybe they could have gotten together and and reached an agreement on player control for X amount of years, compensation, and and things of that nature that would have sus- uh, sustained the Negro Leagues as an industry and all the collateral businesses involved and the economy involved. Well, yeah, boy, you, you asked a loaded question there, but, yeah, I understand what you're saying. One thing I might mention, though, is that the Negro League is itself uh, dependent on these uh, booking agents, and these booking agents control most of the minor league and major league stadiums. So you couldn't get into those places. And the Negro Leagues, with exception, I know out west here, you had Memphis who had their own park. But for the most part, they didn't have their own parks. So they were at a handicap already. And the way they had been functioning for years uh, was almost um, – it was not to their favor, to their benefit. And then, of course, losing Cumberland Posey, who was powerful, powerful in the way that he organized, and he did not want to uh, be cherry-picked. And But some people, they looked at the money, and it was big money that they could get. Now, here's the problem with the money. Um, Major Leagues pretty much came up with a like a $10,000 to $15,000 uh, uh, lead. So – they were picking up these young players for ten to $15,000, and how it worked was this. They give you $5,000, and if this guy didn't make it through, the, you know, say the uh, spring training or maybe the minor league spring training, then they would send the guy back. And so you never got the rest of the money. And so there were a lot of players who went to spring training who, ne- who got sent right back. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Willard Brown never got a chance again. He went up with the St. Louis Browns, 1947. The uh, you might say the fourth African American to appear in the major leagues never got another shot. But he went down to the Texas League and tore the tore the league up for the next seven or eight years. So, yeah, it's, it, boy, that was it. Would have been interesting, but if if you if you really follow baseball, 
and you follow sports now, you know, uh, even if you look at, you know, say college teams, you know, you, they can go to, uh, they can go to a uh, all black school, but they're not interested in all those guys. They're going to pick the best guys. And that's really the same thing that was happening back then. So, uh, cherry picking, and I played baseball in high school. It was going on by then by other teams. They would come and cherry pick our team for the best players. So, I mean, this is not going on just at the major league level. It's going on at all levels. I'm going to ask you two more questions. The first one, I'm going to stay with Cumberland Posey uh, because you've taught me so much already. He faced in Pittsburgh. To his left, to the west, he has Rube Foster. To his right, to the east, he has Nat Strong, two titans of their ears. And he circumvented them both. Yeah, you know what? The thing is, I, everybody didn't always agree with Nat Strong. Nat Strong was seen, seen as an enemy and also a foe at different times. And, of course, after Nat Strong dies in 19... As he dies in 1935, spring of 1935, uh, it's really changed baseball in the East, and a whole bunch of new players come in. As a matter of fact, uh, you probably heard of a guy named Eddie Gottlieb uh, in Philadelphia. He pretty much controlled Philadelphia, and then he controlled who later on he controlled who got into the uh, uh, Yankee Stadium and Brooklyn's Ebbets Field. So, are you familiar with Eddie Gottlieb at all? Excuse me. Are you familiar with Eddie Gottlieb? I don't believe so. The thing with Eddie Gottlieb that I think that uh, you'll understand is uh, today the national, the, I guess, the NBA Rookie of the Year Award is called the Eddie Gottlieb Trophy. But Eddie Gottlieb made his money in Negro League baseball and uh, local basketball in the Philadelphia area. Actually, he controlled the Philadelphia Stars uh, baseball team as well during the 1930s. Same time, uh, Nat Strong was going strong. Um, Mike, if I may, um, I'd like to pick up with Larry Doby. And in what you just said about other sports as well, I'm going to tie into it. Um, and, and so I'll make this a two-part question. First, um, when it comes to Larry Doby, you know, he doesn't seem to get enough recognition for what he did for the American League, uh, especially in a time where leagues meant more. So, and the ironic part about it, too, is that him and Satchel Paige were on the 1948 World Champion Indians uh, with a mascot named Chief Wahoo and a nickname that is a misnomer. So, what what do you think baseball could do to recognize Larry Do- uh, Larry Doby more? And do you think America in general doesn't do more to recognize the other sports pioneers? Okay, I well let's see. Well, they can get, get they can begin to talk about Larry Doby more. Maybe put a statue of him out front, maybe something like that. But for the most part, they missed the window because the man's deceased. And when he was alive, you know, there was not enough efforts to make some of this happen. Uh, But if you look at what uh, uh, all the monuments and things to Jackie Robinson, they spread those over the American and the National League when, you know, maybe the American League would have been more fitting to maybe get some recognition of Larry Doby. And your other question was the one about the 
the the other sports the and, and whether the country. Yeah, you know, nobody really talks it. We're, everybody does just really talk about what um, Jackie Robinson did for baseball, and I think, of course, that that stems to what baseball means to this country. Uh, even as other sports may have have uh, triumphed over it from a dollar standpoint, and maybe even some eyeballs here and there, but at the same time, um, maybe it's not a priority for the country. But at at the same time, uh, it, it 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 does need to be said. You know, I I don't even know off the top of my head. I cannot tell you who broke the color barrier for every single sport. Uh, of uh, that of prominence in this country, and, and it, it's something that should be, you know, it's going to have to be left up to the individual uh, of myself. But it, you know, this this is a narrative that we're talking about, and we're talking about that, you know, black people weren't really in the newspapers, weren't photographed in the newspapers back then. Thinking about the nuance of the way the 20th century and the images and context and and media that we have been presented with over the, the course of our lives has been completely askewed, and we don't even realize yeah. it. it. It's hard to even comprehend what type of experience that that we've all had, and and especially you know when we're divided the way we are. So it's yeah. it's just it's wow. it's remarkable. Anyway, continue. Yeah, well, you know, well, you said it very well. Uh, one thing that I I believe, and I try to write about it in my Dizzy Dean book, um, and that's why the subtitle was Race, Media, and America's National uh, Pastime, because I I tried to show how the media handled the promotion of African-American baseball players, and uh, it, it was not a thing of beauty, I can tell you that, but it was a thing that the entire country – uh, of the major newspapers were pretty much on the same same page with how they did this. And so I'm not sure how that was executed. I don't know if it was in journalism classes across the country or whatever, but there was a pattern to this. And I try to show the pattern uh, in, in, the, in the book that I write to, to inform people of what we're up against today. And, you know, I'm, I might mention this, too, to show you how powerful this is. I was uh, I collected baseball cards growing up, and I was one of the early black people who went to baseball card shows, especially out in the Midwest. You know, it would be all these white collectors, and it would be one black guy, and that would be me. And uh, during that time, most of these collectors, you know, they were interested in, uh, you know, Ted Williams would come or Joe DiMaggio or somebody like that. And those were the guys Mickey Mantle was going – those are the guys they wanted to see. They could care less about, you know, a Negro leaguer. You know, Larry Doby wasn't invited to these shows. It was it was their icons, the ones that were pushed to them as they were growing up. And and unfortunately, you know, with the exception of Satchel Paige, who died in 1983, so he wasn't around for much of this, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, talk about bringing these Negro leaguers. Uh, I might mention that the first time Buck O'Neill went to a show – I, and Connie Johnson, too, who later pitched for the White Sox and the Orioles, I took them to a show and paid them to sit at my table. And, you, you know, I, I didn't have deep pockets, but I knew the importance of having them there. And then later on, after these people, these titans of baseball, the, the Williams and the Maggios, and those people started to pass on, people started to start looking at the Negro Leagues. And I could see the pattern. I could see the pattern because those people were no longer there to get autographs, and all of a sudden, now the Negro Leaguers are important. So uh, 
But I think it's the way that baseball was pushed to that generation that they just couldn't see the value in some of these Negro League players. Sam, you brought up experience and you brought up the name Larry Doby again. So, Phil, I will ask you. First, I will say, as a Brooklynite, I say this with great confidence, that there is no more diverse place on the planet than Kings County, Brooklyn. That mm-hmm. being said, Larry Doby and Jackie Robinson had different experiences. Larry Doby wasn't that well-received by his team, unlike Jackie Robinson, and you can put that in air quotes, where at least he had mm-hmm. Neil Hodges and Ralph Branca and Pee Wee Reese extending uh, their hand in hospitality, not so much Larry Doby. So okay. if you want to compare and contrast the experiences, Phil, please. Well, you know, that kind of leads to another uh, misconception about racism in America. Uh, And uh, part of that is, uh, for the most part, people, when they think of racism in America, they're going to think about places down south. You know, the Georgia, the Alabama, the Mississippis. And what they don't realize that, you know, racism in Cleveland was just as bad is, you know, maybe it was over in Wyoming and Colorado and Kansas and Missouri. So at part of our education, we still need to be educated. Let me put it that way. And and uh, matter of fact, Malcolm X used to say, if you're south of the Canadian border, <laughs> then you're in the south. So, uh, but yeah, racism was rampant all over the country. So it doesn't surprise me that he didn't get a warm reception uh, in uh, Cleveland the one that you would have thought being a northern city. I think discourse is the key to many of our issues in society. Uh, Discourse, everything can follow from there, uh, but respectful discourse I think is key. So, Sam, all that being said, first, Phil, thank you for the education, really. Uh, I appreciate your time so much for coming on Bedford and Sullivan podcast and for allowing Sam to me, uh, allowing Sam for me to uh, host this uh, fascinating conversation. I'll remember it. Uh, I've learned from it. Uh, and Sam, back to you. And luckily we have recorded it, and we have recorded it for all of you out well, there. Phil, as always, thank you for joining us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Well, I tell you, it's, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, I'm still like a student of baseball Every day I'm reading and trying to learn something, and uh, certainly I look forward to reading your article about the Brooklyn Royal Giants. Uh, I'm, you know, fascinated with that team. I did write something about them uh, in my book called, uh, it's part of Phil Dixon's American Baseball Chronicles, The Great Teams. In 1905, they played the Brooklyn Royal Giants for the World Championship, and so I wrote about that in that book. So I'm really excited. To uh, read your uh, writing, but I'm still a student. So much to learn, uh, so many names to remember, and so many places to visit. And I'm just glad that you give me an opportunity to talk about a few things. And uh, it, it's just an honor, honestly. It, it's you. You are filled with so much information. And as I, I, I texted uh, Mike, you are great. Uh, so uh, thank you so much again, and, and thank you all out there for listening. There's, there's still so much to be talked about. There's still so much to be researched, uh, getting this project off the ground. So please join us next time. Take care. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you, Mike.